Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 182 with Eric Reese of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Ghost, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I am the host of this podcast and also the CEO of Founder Magazine. I'm coming to you live from hometown, sunny Melbourne, Australia. We're getting really good weather at the moment and uh, it's great. We've got the tennis here, we've got the Australian Open. I'm hoping I can go tomorrow, uh, Friday afternoon. It's going to be great. It's going to be like pretty hot, but looking forward to catching up with some friends, having a few drinks and uh, yeah, watching the tennis and having some fun. So I hope you guys are having a great day wherever you are around the world, having a great start to your 2018 uh, I'm really foc- I'm really excited. We're, we've got a lot of strategy in place that's very, very focused this year for us at Founder and uh, working on some game-changing stuff. And uh, I, I can't stress this enough. You guys might, you might not know this, but we're going to, in the next couple of years, we're going to produce, you know, eventually 100 plus courses uh, getting, you know, these people that we have on this podcast to teach courses on their expertise. It's going to be absolutely incredible. I envision a 10x platform that is better than anything else that out there in the marketplace, purely focused around entrepreneurship and startup education. So that's what we're working on. And uh, if you weren't aware, we've just launched one of our, it is our second course for that platform. And uh, it's by Ari Mysel. And uh, his name, uh, you may not know of, uh, but he's an absolutely incredible founder. It's The course is called Productivity Machine. I highly recommend you check it out if you want to be more productive and just, uh, you know, 
set up your year in a really, really good way for 2018, just go to productivitymachine.co, productivitymachine.co, and uh, make sure you check it out. Uh, We'll just open that one up, and I I know you guys are going to love it. So let's talk about today's guest. Things are going well on my side. I can't complain. hope things are going well with you, but let's talk about today's guest, Eric Reese. Now, this guy... This guy changed my life um, in regards to thinking about the way to produce products, how to find a really solid business model for your startup, and uh, he's quite the pioneer, and he pioneered the lean startup movement. You may or may not have heard of this movement or this framework and methodology before, but trust me, it's game-changing. If you haven't got got or read the book, The Lean Startup, uh, please make sure you do. We use this methodology and everything that we do at Founder around how we build, launch, product, and really have worked out to seek out what our business model looks like and how we're building this thing. And um, I've been wanting to speak to Eric for years, and we finally have spoken to him. And uh, we talk about his latest book called The Startup Way. But Anyways, guys, I'm not going to ramble anymore. I hope you're enjoying these episodes. If you are, please do take the time to leave us a review on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, you name it. It helps us more than you can imagine. And also, please do share this with your friends. I know that you must have some other founders that you're friends with or business owners, entrepreneurs. Please do share this. Spread the word. I'm on a mission with Founder and our whole team Everything we do, we obsess about building a household name, entrepreneurial brand, helping tens of millions of people on a weekly basis. We're not there yet. I'm on a five to seven year journey to get there. I'd love your help. Please do share this. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump on the show. The first question I ask everyone uh, that uh, we speak to is, how did you get your job? Which job do you mean? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I guess... um, the the work that you're finding yourself doing the work you're doing today how would you end up uh, starting that uh so so i was a tech entrepreneur you know of the very classic sort grew up grew up in my parents basement programming computers the whole thing and i i had a bunch of startup failures and then some success and it was really through that that i started writing about entrepreneurship and eventually called the theory i was promoting the lean startup and then that turned into a movement and took over my life so I don't know if you would call that a job. But. <laughs> awesome. Um, look, this the the book Lean Startup. Um, one of my mentors gave it to me, um, literally five six years ago, ju- around just the time I started doing what I'm doing today, and it was just such a life changing book. And we use we use the Lean Startup methodology to launch so many different products, do so many tests for things that we're working on, and it's just such a game. It's just such a game changing book. So very big fan, but I'm really keen to understand about, uh, you know, you said that you just, just a little bit of a background, um, just so for the audience that, that might not be familiar with your work. Um, would you be able to give us uh, a little bit of a background on, on the, on the, on the startups you were working on beforehand? I'm, I'm really curious on, on that front. Cause you mentioned them in the book, but was it one, was it, was it two? Like, yeah, it was just a couple. Um, I was, uh, I was in the virtual reality space you know, before it was cool. And uh, so, yeah, I, I built, built a couple of products that involved 3D avatars and virtual worlds, microcurrencies, social gaming, that, that kind of area. So all, all trends that have turned out to be quite big since, but we were a little early and entrepreneurship being early is pretty much the same as being dead. So 
So it was challenging. Um, the company that had the most success from that time is called Imvu, I-M-V-U. Uh, and still going, still a profitable company uh, in Mountain View um, here in California, but not a you know Facebook-style breakout hit. I see. And but still quite proud of it. Yes. And did you exit that company? And that's what um, that's that's how you started writing no, writing and I, I yeah I mean I, I had been there about five years and I just I had always sworn to myself that I was not going to be one of those founders that has to get kicked out because they're causing problems and uh, I just felt like it was time for me to move on so, so the company is still an independent private profitable company but it has not exited in Silicon Valley province yet got you okay interesting and then. How did like the the idea and 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 the framework and everything around the lean startup come about? And then we can move to walk uh, talking about your new book, which I'm really keen to talk about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, look, I had the the privilege of having really terrific mentors and advisors who uh, laid a lot of the groundwork for it. Um, you know, most notably, Steve Blank, his theory of customer development, um, which I which we put into practice at Inview. But I was also a big devotee of agile software development and Kent Beck and extreme programming and that, that whole world um, through that became really knowledgeable about lean manufacturing and the kind of all the different theories around cycle time and, and speed of iteration. So I had immersed myself in those theories because I found them helpful in doing my work. But the biggest driver for me was that I kept having the experience over and over again that work should be done a different way than I was being taught. So I was always pushing the companies that I was in to go faster, to be more iterative, to have customers be more involved, to be more scientific in their decision making. And everyone thought I was crazy. I just I kept would always get so much pushback left and right for these ideas. And so uh, at a certain point when I started to have success with those ideas, you know, when it was kind of my turn to put them to the test and they started to work, then people would give me a hard time about why do they work. And I would be like, well, just look at the evidence with your own eyes. And of course, nobody wants to look at the evidence. They want to understand the story of what's really going on. And so I felt like in order to explain myself, I had to kind of develop a theory that could explain my own experience. And that's ultimately what Lean Startups was born out of. I see. And did you did you think it would be this massive movement and, and you know? Oh, of course not. Of no? Of course not. No, no, I didn't have the slightest inkling of it. When the first time someone uh, asked me, for permission to start a lean startup meetup group. I said, well, first of all, you don't need my permission. Just go ahead. <laughs> and second of all, it sounds like a terrible idea. I really don't think it's a good use of your time. You really should do something else. And they said to me, no, no, I think it could be good. And they said, well, if I said, well, that's fine, but probably nobody will come to the meetup. So it'll be really a waste of time. And, they, and he said to me, if people come, will you come speak to the first one? And at the time, it seemed like a really easy to promise to sure. Yeah, of course. I'll, <laughs> since I don't think anyone's going to come, it's harmless for me to promise. Well, of course, a lot of people came. And that was the first of many, many, many such groups that were created. And I, I, the whole thing took me very much by surprise. I mean, I certainly I, I appreciated the work that, that people did in building up the movement. And I certainly did what I could to encourage and inspire and collaborate you know, as much as possible. But I wasn't not the, it was not my idea. And it was not, I was not the source of energy behind it. Hmm. Interesting. So let's talk about your latest book, The Startup Way. I'm really curious, what compelled you to write uh, this book? And then also, um, oh, I've got a ton of questions because it, it feels fitting for me, but yeah, why you started this book. But I, I'm curious to hear your story because um, 
yeah, I mean, I'm probably, yeah, it's a very relevant book to me now. So just like with Lean Startup, there's a point at which when you are doing something new and you have a certain intuition about how it should be done and you do it, it's really interesting the first time. And even the second time, the third time, and the fourth time, at a certain point, you start to feel like, wait a minute, if I'm explaining the same things over and over again, it should be more efficient to use some kind of one-to-many transmission mechanism to share instead of you know one one company at a time, one founder at a time. So I was being asked more and more often to help people apply the Lean Startup framework in scale situations. First, really, and especially companies that had gotten past product market fit and founders wanted to know, how come my innovative DNA, my startup DNA seems to be evaporating? And my organization is getting sluggish and lethargic as I scale. You know, why is that? How can I prevent it? Uh, and at the same time, people from some traditional older organizations were saying, how do I recapture that innovative spirit that we've already lost? And so I started to do that kind of work, both with hyper-growth startups and also with established big companies and even with some governments and like real bureaucracy. And I started to notice commonalities and patterns in all those situations and as I said, and, you know, it took me a while to kind of figure out the theory of how and why and what does it all mean. And once I had that sorted out in my own head, then the answers I was giving people were starting to seem kind of repetitive. And I was like, hey, maybe this could be the, the, kind of the foundation for a new book. I see. And I, I'm going to shoot just some um, random questions at you and um, uh, um, just feel free to answer them uh, as best you can. So, um, because these are some things that I'm I'm personally struggling with, so I'm going to be a little selfish. So when it comes to scaling a company and building teams, in particular hiring, how do you know uh, what is the next appropriate role to hire for? This is a really hard question, and, and it's, of course, there's, there are a lot of context-sensitive variables, but I will say one rule of thumb that has always served me well is to look at the at the job that you're doing yourself today that is either something you want to get more professional about or, or almost automate, you know, because you're trying to do that over and over again, or where you're really struggling and you need help. It's really difficult to hire someone to do a job you're not currently already doing. So, you know, like we talk about shedding load as a founder, try to find the places where you have an area of responsibility that you can hand over to somebody else. Because the fact that you're already struggling to do it means you know what the job requires and why it's hard. So you're more likely to hire somebody good and you're more likely to be able to hold them accountable. Classic thing as a stealth startup that has like no customers and no external facing anything, hiring a fancy VP of marketing to do marketing in the future. But they, they haven't done any marketing at all yet. So they don't even really know what they need or why it's hard. And it's really easy to get snowed by someone who can talk a good game but doesn't do anything in those kinds of situations. Mm, that's great advice. But what about if what about if it's the role's technical and you don't understand the technical elements? Should should you under, need to understand that? Yep, it's very very hard to hire a technical role if you don't have at least some understanding of what the role requires. So yeah, if you're a non technical person. You really, you got, you, hopefully you have a technical co-founder who's going to help you sort that out. Hiring a technical co-founder is very difficult and figuring out, and if you don't have a technical co-founder, hiring, you know, a technical employee is even more difficult. So uh, I would want to get that technical expertise into the team, you know, pretty soon. Mm -hmm. Okay. And 
when it comes to, I guess, uh, like when you when you're starting to scale your company and, and build out your team, uh, how do you know when it's time to uh, input managers or a manager or or a manager of one of the teams or a team? How do you, I mean, that's really not much of a rule of thumb for that. You know, I mean, the truth is in most startups, the CEO manages everybody until they can't handle any more direct reports and then start to organize. But yeah, I don't think there's like a one size fits all answer to that. I think it's pretty context sensitive. Yeah, no, that's okay. But um, like 15, 20, 30 direct reports. Oh, no, no one can have that many. (laughs) I think, I think so. So like the rule of thumb I use is I try to have a weekly one-on-one with all of my direct reports every week. Yes. If I have too many direct reports that I can't have all the one-on-ones, I know I have too many. Yes. Gotcha. And when it comes to um, like at a startup, it's it's really important. You, you talk about speed. That was something that, you know, um, I learned. Uh, like it, it was massive. It was a massive game changer for me around, you know, build, speed and uh within within teams and and agile and um i'm curious how do you know when you're pushing your team too hard and you're working them too much how do you know that gauge or you as a company is pushing too much and doing too much so in this startup we talk a lot about the build measure learn feedback loop and what we're trying to do is optimize time through the loop uh people always talk about doing too much going too fast like and they don't define like what does too much mean? What does too fast mean? So like it, you want these these concepts wind up being pretty vague. With these startup, we tried to be really specific about what we're trying to what what is the velocity that needs to be measured, and it's you know speed of speed of experimentation throughput through the feedback loop. So in that circumstance, we it's best to use techniques like in lean startup we talk a lot about five whys as an automatic speed regulator, where you know, you can't really trade quality for time. So if you're, if you're cutting corners to go faster, you wind up creating problems that slow you down. So a lot of the, the mechanical techniques that are drawn from lean manufacturing are designed. Things like Kanban and the Andon cord and all that stuff, FiveWise. They're designed to help us find that optimal pace for the marathon that we're on. Mm, got you. I see. And when it comes to project management uh do you 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 recommend kanban um yes gotcha and would you would you um be able to just uh just briefly tell our audience why using the kanban uh framework is really important for managing projects sure most product teams that i meet literally do not know if the work they're doing today is making the product better or worse. It sounds so ridiculous to say, and yet it's true. They just assume that the product owner knows what the customer wants, and as long as they do what the product owner wants, then everything will be fine. But we as consumers of products know this is not true because so many products, when you get an update, you're just like, oh God, I made it worse again. We all had that experience. We know certain teams that just like, they keep redesigning something that's not broken. They keep making it more confusing without making it better. Um, so, so the antidote to that is to try and bring some discipline of validation into everything that we do. And the easiest way to do that for a team that's already using story cards or some kind of storyboard 
flow control for um, how they build their team. Like classic scrum board will have three columns on it. One that says, here's the backlog, here's the work in progress, and here's what's done. A classic way to to, to add Lean Startup thinking to that kind of a board is to add a fourth column called validated. So after a story is done technically, we don't remove it from the board until we show that we have approved that the hypothesis attached to that card has, has been uh, confirmed or denied. And what's nice about that is it forces us to remember to place a hypothesis against every story choice. And it really puts the weight on the product owner to think more scientifically. And it helps the product owner and the whole team get better because part of the problem is we think we know what customers want, but when we're wrong, we don't always get that feedback. So this gets a nice feedback loop going. The, the insight from Kanban would be that the more cards you have in play in this system, the less learning you're going to do and the worse your throughput is going to be because humans are bad at multitasking. So what you ought to do is say, if I have five people on my team, then we're only allowed to have five cards in every bucket at most, including the backlog and the validated bucket. So think of the columns now as fixed size buckets. So you can't add something to the backlog without removing something. And if the validated column fills up and you can't, you're not taking those cards off fast enough, then you won't be able to, to add more technical stuff to the in-progress column because ever the whole pipeline will back up. And that's what you want. That forces you to pay attention to where the bottlenecks are in your process. A lot of people listening may be thinking to themselves, that sounds way too complicated for my team. And that's fine. Not, you know, this is every technique is kind of has a certain overhead attached to it and only makes sense for teams of a certain size and a certain sophistication. So we throw these these examples out as examples to say, oh, this is this is how you could do it at scale, but you know, not necessarily how everybody would do it every time. And, you know, a five-person team just starting out can probably avoid, if they're serious about validation in other ways, they may not need to track it this formally. But a lot of other teams find this really helpful. So I don't mean to say everyone has to follow the exact procedure I just laid out, but just to say I think uh, that's like one that is really defensible from a kind of principal point of view. This is how to optimize for the speed of learning. Mm. Yeah, I love that. I love that framework. And I'm really interested because one thing that we find is um, we try and break up the cards uh, like as as simplified as possible so we can kind of run the board. But um, so we find that if we do, if we would limit it to, you know, five cards per column, um, yep. what, what we would find is is some cards would turn into absolute mammoth epic beasts. So we'd put in, we'd have to put in checklists and stuff. So that's what we usually yeah, just right. break it, break up the cards. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. Certainly the, like there's a basic assumption that teams are good at estimating. And so story cards are of comparable size and you definitely should, as soon as you realize that a story is bigger than you thought, you should always split it into multiple cards. And that actually, and, and good hypotheses can help a lot with that because what happens is these stories tend to get big when, when, the, when the goal is vague. So by, by tying up what the goal is, you can tend to keep the stories under control. But yeah, you don't want to let, you don't want to let any behemoths go. And, and I know teams that have different rules that they, you know, that, that cards are not allowed to stick around for more than a certain amount of time. So I even know teams that like they, they practice continuous deployment. And so all code has to be checked in like at the end of the day. 
So if you if you find yourself in a situation where you're trying to carry code over to the next day, that's a sign that you that the card is too large. And they have different, you know, heuristics and rules and have tips for how to prevent that from happening and say, oh, let's, you know, let's let's actually stop now and break it up or let's let's get as much as we've done as we can today, but then like check like do all the like library and refactoring and behind the scenes work and just check that in, get that integrated, and then we'll work on the feature tomorrow. So it helps, it really helps drive what we call the batch size of work down, which is a very desirable thing to do. Hmm, that makes sense. So let's switch gears. I'm 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 quite interested. Um, so you said that the, the the premise of the startup way, the reason that compelled you to write this book was you 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 were starting to work uh, with with other startups and you were noticing they were having problems scaling. Uh, can you give me some examples or some or some things that you've come in and done or some some tweaks that you've you've made, I guess, operationally or recommendations, and you've seen just ridiculous results. Or some examples of that? Yeah, sure. So, uh, uh, like one team I was talking to, the founder had graduated from Y Combinator, but now their company. When they were in Y Combinator, they had I think a co, maybe a two co-founders, a three-person company in Y Combinator. Now they have like 250 employees, quite doing quite well. And he was complaining to me about he had this team and they're supposed to be working on this brand new product to take them into a totally new industry for the future. And they don't ship anything and they're going slow and they're just, they're not thinking about it like a founder. They had spent, he had checked in with them after like six months and they had basically not shipped anything. Yet they were, the whole time they were just giving him status updates that everything was fine. And it was only when he really dug in that what they thought fine meant was like having meetings and making design requirement documents and talking to all the middle managers in the company to to get approval and buy-in for all the things that they were going to do in the future. And, and he was really frustrated. And I remember asking him if he had given those same excuses to Paul Graham when he was in Y Combinator, what would have happened? And he's like, oh, Paul would have taken my head off. He would have, I mean, he would have humiliated me in front of the whole class, you know, kind of thing. He took no, he would take no crap about something like that. And I was like, right. But he would also, you, he's like, but you know what? As he was reflecting on it, he's like, I never would have even gotten to that point. Because I would have known that he would get mad at me, and I and he would have taught me earlier in the process. Part of the lessons and you know culture of the place was weekly check-ins, and every every weekly dinner we'd be showing off what we shipped, and there was a message about making things that people want. So, so he realized that he had been immersed in this training program, effectively, right? This culture and accountability system that he had not replicated for his own employees. So now that people work for him, they didn't go through Y Combinator. They weren't there when his company was a tiny, scrappy upstart. They don't know about Paul Graham or whatever. Like they don't have those support systems. So he realized that he had to treat his internal entrepreneurs the way that he had been treated. He actually built an internal Y Combinator program complete with a demo day and everything. Wow. For his internal entrepreneurs to start thinking in that new way. Interesting. And what happened? Work pretty great. Uh, I can't say more without making it pretty obvious what company I'm talking about. So, mm. you know, I'd like to respect the confidentiality of these conversations. Yeah. So I ask you to take my word for it that that it, that it worked out well. But but the the interesting thing to me was just the variety of crazy stuff that his employees started coming up with, and the like the real passion and innovation that they brought to their work in this new structure that they really weren't doing before, even though the same it was the same people. 
and they had been always been really mission aligned. And they loved working at the company as a very high employee satisfaction. And yet there was all this creativity that they felt like they were being denied the chance to you know, do. Mm, that's interesting. So, yeah, that's actually, I just kind of naturally thought that as your company grows and grows and grows, it just kind of, that's just, you, that's avoidable that it that kind of becomes a corporate kind of structure and, 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 and way of, way of movement. But you're saying that, um, you, you can, you can always protect and keep that startup mentality, that scrappiness, even, even when you build, you know, 200 people plus organization. Yeah, that's right. And listen, what you, what you've heard and, you know, what people believe about, the inevitable decay and bureaucratization, whatever the word is there, the, the uh, ossifying of the corporate structure. Like that is, to be fair, the most common belief and the most common occurrence. But, you know, if you just look at something like Amazon and the way that Jeff Bezos has built that thing into an innovation factory, it's hard for us to say that, that we don't know there's a better way available. Like we know that we can do this. We don't always know how. So, the book is kind of an attempt to, to close that gap and say, hey, there is a there is a method to this if you want to follow in those footsteps. Mm, yeah, amazing. And um, just just last question uh, across the startups that you have been working with and 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 have kind of um, taken a strong peek in operationally and 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 seen the behind the scenes of what's going on and and was compelled you to write the startup way. The leaders. I'm really curious around the leaders. Any any commonalities or anything anything you'd like to share with our audience, just as a finishing piece, just on leadership, the importance. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the vast majority of leaders that I meet to talk to about these issues are not interested in change. They say they're interested. They say they want innovation. They want their company to have startup DNA. They want the scarcity mindset and intensity, and they say all the right things, but they don't really mean it. And the way you can tell they don't mean it is that they don't change their personal behavior to hold their own teams accountable in a different way. They don't themselves ask to be held accountable in a different way. And especially, they don't change the deep systems of the corporation. They don't change how people are promoted, compensated, how projects are funded, how resources are allocated. That all stays conventional. And then we claim that we want change. We claim that we're a meritocracy, but then we don't build the systems required to eliminate bias and to allow good ideas to come from anyone. So uh, I think as leaders, we have to ask ourselves, are we serious about this or not? What, what, what problem do we really think we're solving? And do we want to create a lasting change or, or do we want to be forgotten by the next generation? Mm, awesome, man. Um, okay. Well, look, uh, we have to, we have to work towards wrapping up, but um so uh, where's the best place people can find out more about The Startup Way and your work? Uh, best place is thestartupway.com. And I'll just give your listeners a little, a little tip. There's a bunch of bonus material and uh, uh, diagrams and case studies and a bunch of goodies, including some pretty cool offers um, to get some free stuff. But anyway, you'll check it out. Uh, if you go to like enter, there's a place on the website where you can redeem a code. Every copy of the book in the U.S. hardcover edition, if you go to the very last page, there's a unique code stamped in the book you can redeem online. But even if you don't have the book or you got the ebook or something, if you just put in your email address, uh, a bunch of the stuff that you, is available to everybody. So, so startupway.com and uh, check for this place where you can redeem the code. 
Awesome. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. Well, fantastic. Well, look, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and uh, just the work that you do, Eric. You've made a massive impact on the way that we build out Founder and 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 you've saved us a lot of headaches and and uh, things that we would have done if we had have had the mentality of build it and they will come and and uh, yeah yeah you've you've been a, an absolute. Um, life changer for oh, thank me you so, much. so i just and, and our thank team you. and everything that we do so i just want to say thank you so much for every, everything you do and the work you do thank you for your kind words i really appreciate it you're welcome well look um i hope you have a fantastic day and uh, thank you so much for your time eric all right take care hey guys i hope you enjoyed this interview as you might already know our mission at founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.